Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Mr. Michael Becker. And Michael Becker is one of the who's who's uh, persons uh, right now in the multifamily world. Uh, welcome, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks for the nice introduction. I appreciate that. I don't know for the who's who, but uh, <laughs> absolutely, to- absolutely. I think if someone doesn't know who you are, my goodness, you know they are hiding under some rocks. <laughs> so a little bit about Michael. Michael is a principal with uh, SPI Advisory. Uh, with his past lending background, he's scaled his business. He's done over 800 million worth of units. Uh, currently, they own uh, close to 4,500 units. Uh, you know, just about, uh, uh, you said, um, how many million you said? For 500, 600 million you said, Michael? Yeah, it was, it's probably, your portfolio is probably uh, north of a half a billion dollars in, in value today. Awesome, awesome. So uh, let's roll back a year's, uh, Michael. Uh, give us a brief background as to how you got started. Uh, sure. How was your first deal like and things like that? Yeah, so my, uh, yeah, thank, thank you for having me first off. So Michael Becker, I'm based in uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, with the way I kind of got into the business was I was, a, I was a vendor. I was a banker. I was loaning money to other people. And I have a, a background in loaning all the major uh, food groups of industrial, of, of commercial real estate. So I've lent on industrial retail office in the last five or so years of my banking career, all I did was uh, multifamily lending. And so I was just making a loan to a bunch of other people and then kind of realized that I was on the, the wrong side of all those deals. It's kind of better to be the, the borrower than the lender. So I started out in 20, either 2010, 2011, I started buying some smaller stuff, some like houses mm-hmm. with my own money, you know, partners and ended up scaling up to about 16 uh, rent houses. And I realized that wasn't very scalable. Um, and then so I kind of reflected back to what I was doing all day, every day at work and so I decided to transition into a larger scale multifamily. So in 2013, so about six years ago, uh, we bought our first deal. And uh, as I talked to you today, we've done 33 deals, uh, about 6,700 units. Uh, uh, today we own uh, 20 deals, about about 4,500 units. So I've gone full cycle so far on uh, 16 of my 33 deals. I've sold 13 and then uh, three more we've, we've refinanced, uh, returned some principal and still on the deal today. So it's been, uh, it's been quite, the, quite the busy six years, no question. Sure, sure. And uh, what is your investment strategy, Michael? Like, uh, I know some people say that, hey, we're going to own the multifamily long term and things like that. So are you a permanent long term hold guy? I, I know you exited some deals. Like, yeah. what is sort of your philosophy around this? Yeah, so our basic business model is pretty simple and straightforward. So we're like, we do light value ads. So we're just targeting deals that are, call it 10% or more below market rents compared to their, their neighboring property that have, you know, generally some sort of physical issue or management issue or some combination of those two things. And we try to come in the deal pretty well capitalized. We cure any sort of deferred maintenance that might exist on the property. And you know, then we set aside money up front to mm-hmm. implement our, our, our value add strategy. So we'll, um, you know, upgrade like the common areas, like the office, fitness center, pool, 
And then we'll go inside the units and do appliances and flooring and light fixtures and cabinet fronts and things like that. Sure. And after we come in and make a better product, we come in and charge a higher rent that our properties on the street get. And then when you increase the income, you by extension increase the value. And that's our basic business model. Uh, we're typically targeting about a five-year hold period on most of these deals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite frankly, when we first started out, we did a lot of workforce housing, a lot of like C-class stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, those deals, um, you know, weren't, weren't deals that we wanted to own quite as long just because they're just a lot of the building components are kind of functionally obsolescent. You just have to like, cast iron sewers and boilers and flat roofs and stuff like that. Sure, that sure. Uh, so you have a lot more ongoing maintenance uh, to those types of buildings. And kind of what we buy today is a little bit nicer, kind of A minus type stuff. So maybe like the early 2000s vintage. And those deals have a little bit better um, construction components. So they're just a little bit easier to operate. So sure. I'd foresee us owning the deals that we own today a little bit longer, but uh, we typically underwrite to a five year. Uh, hold is, is, is pretty standard. And then, you know, how the market plays out is kind of how it plays out. I see. I see. And which are the, like the primary markets uh, you operate in, uh, Michael? Yeah, like so I'm based in Dallas. And so, uh, and then my business partner is based in Austin. So those, um, those happen to be the two markets that, uh, that we, we just buy in. So the vast majority of what we've been, has been uh, done has been up here in North Texas and we've done a couple of deals. We've done a little bit over 600 units in the Austin market. And uh, as we talk right now, I have, uh, two deals. I'm I'm buying one in, in Fort Worth, and we're buying one in Austin. So we'll be about 900 units in Austin, uh, about 7,200 overall that we've done uh, here here shortly, and uh, if everything goes planned. So awesome, awesome. Yeah. So in your early years, let's roll back a little bit, uh, Michael. Sure. In your early years, when you had single family, what were sort of the limitations you had noticed, and how come you sort of quickly scaled into syndications? And obviously, you are a big force now. Uh, could you maybe give our listeners a sort of insight into why syndication is a powerful way uh, to scale and get into bigger and better deals? Yeah, so I don't know if what I did was the right thing, uh, the wrong thing, per se, <laughs> but uh, you know, the the benefits. Um, you know, the, the margins that you can get on, especially when I was doing it, it was a really good time to do it. A lot of homes just kind of buy out of foreclosure. So there's a lot of really good deals, but um, you know, you're on a, on a gross percentage basis. I think you can probably make more on a percentage basis um, doing some of the smaller single family. It's a less, less uh, perfect market, a lot more opportunities, a lot less sophistication within there. Uh, the problem just is scale. Like, you know, I got to 16, I was self-managing it and I had a job and a wife and kids and, you know, it was kind of hard to stay on top of all that stuff. Um, sure. So, so it was just lack of scalability. And if I killed it, I'd make 30, 40 grand uh, on a deal. And then if you do a really good job as a sponsor in the multifamily space, you can make millions of dollars. So on a, on a gross basis, it's just, it's just better. And so we decided, uh, I decided um, to kind of form up a partnership with my partner, Sean, and then we, uh, we just kind of went out. And so I felt like, um, you know, it's just, it's a really good business from the standpoint. It's like, um, almost like perfect leverage. So, uh, you have not only the financial leverage where you can go in and, you know, get the bank to loan you 70 or 75% of the purchase price or total cost. And then, and then you can put a little bit of your money down and then you can leverage a network of investors to then bring the, the bulk of the capital with you. So, you know, maybe we put in 5% of the money or 10% of the money that's required and then get the rest of the 90% from a bunch of other people, a hundred thousand at a time. So I can leverage their money, their resources, and then I can then leverage a management company to then do most of the day-to-day -day work. 
and kind of lease my properties, turn it over, make it ready. And then, um, you know, my, my investors can leverage my expertise, my connections, et cetera. So it's really, when you think about it, I think about it like almost like a perfectly leveraged business. Um, all the time you have great tax advantages and you can avoid paying a bunch in uh, income taxes legally by uh, depreciation and sheltering your income. So it's, um, if you find a better business, let me know. But uh, this, one's, this one's pretty good. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I think uh, just the value of syndications that you bring so much value to other people. There is a lot of capital. There are a lot of busy professionals always looking uh, for a safe haven that they can invest. And obviously, you know, like gain good equity multiples. I mean, we sell deals where, you know, people have gone like more than, you know, double their money in three to five yeah. years. There's, there's definitely something to be said about that. So speaking of uh, syndications then, uh, Michael, how, how do you structure your deals? Like how is your general partnership, limited partnership structure? Could you yeah, so, so we, we're pretty straightforward. We just kind of started doing this and uh, we really haven't deviated much. So when we do deals, there's really three, uh, three forms of compensation um, in these deals for, for us as sponsors. First and foremost, we'll typically take an acquisition fee on the front end. So we've charged anywhere from, uh, call it one to 3% of the purchase price. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the deal, kind of the smaller percentage. But I'd say on average, it's about 2% with us right. here lately. Um, the second way we tend to get compensated is uh, through asset management fee income. Mm -hmm. So when we, we buy a property, we, we employ a third-party management company. And uh, they, they've charged us anywhere from like 275 to 4%, depending on the size of the deal. So again, the bigger the bigger the property, the more units, more revenue produces, kind of the smaller um, they charge. Mm -hmm. Let's say we pay them 3% and then we'll, we'll take a 1% asset management fee. So if it's three to them, one to us, it's 4% of collective revenue to the deal, but we'll nice. get 1% of that. And then finally, the way we do it is um, we'll take what I call, or I refer to as sponsor, uh, sponsor equity, but you can call it carried interest or promote or what, whatever you want to. Um, mm -hmm. And our, our typical deal is an 80-20 split where us as the sponsors, we'll take 20% of the deal and then the investors get 80% and then we do not pay a preferred return. So um, there's no, in, in my experience, there's no right or wrong way of doing this. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the sponsors will pay like a six pref or an eight pref and have a graduated waterfall that, you know, above that. It does that. get complicated. <laughs> it just gets complicated. So you just right. need to kind of understand who your, um, who your investor is and, um, one of the things I've kind of learned, or if someone's, uh, this is a popular saying, is a confused mind doesn't buy. So if people don't understand and can't simply understand what you're what you're putting in front of them, they'll be confused and they won't they won't proceed forward. So we just try to be extremely straightforward and simple, and uh, it's it's worked really well for us. Right, right, right. And, and I think you can't make someone sort of take that leap sometimes. I mean, you can teach or, you know, impart knowledge to a certain extent, but if someone is really insecure or, you know, unsure about themselves, it's, it's, it's really difficult in my opinion. That I mean, that's what I have discovered. So sometimes, you know, I think we share the knowledge and I think we kind of leave it at that. I think at some point someone has to self-educate and kind of gain an understanding of what benefit it brings in. Would you agree? Yeah, that's right. right. Right, got it, got it. And no preferred returns, you said, Michael, there. Could you maybe share some thoughts? Because I know a lot of, uh, you know, investors and uh, multifamily uh, sort of syndicators do have uh, preferred returns. Yeah. Could you share some thoughts as to why you don't? Uh, yeah, so again, there's no right or wrong. Um, and just because I don't do it, someone else does, doesn't make them right or wrong. So some of my thoughts are around it. Hmm. Um, you know, as a, uh, from, from the, from the passive investor standpoint, 
Um, you know, I, I'm a little worried about the preferred return and then from, uh, from the standpoint, you like, you think it's, um, better. Cause you know, from, I understand what's the traffic is from passive standpoint it's like, I'm guaranteed to get, you know, my money in the first 8% return before the sponsor starts getting paid. Um, but I think it has the attention or the possibility of uh, disaligning interest. And what I mean by that is, um, so me as a sponsor, if I have to pay an 8% preferred return, and uh, I go into year one and, and I can only produce a 6% return. So what happens is I pay my investor six, 2% is accrued and carried forward. So then I'm going to the next year. So then I have to pay the eight plus the two, so I have to pay 10 and say we hit a recession. I can't pay anything out that year. Right. So then I go to the third year. So now I got the 10 I carried forward plus an eight. Now I got 18 and I'm as a sponsor looking like I dug in myself a hole and I'm digging deeper right. and deeper looking out saying thinking like well man i'm never going to make money in this deal because i'm mm -hmm. so far behind on my craft mm -hmm. let me just go ahead and sell this deal let me just do make some decision that may or may not be the right thing at that moment in time for the deal but i'm not have no no possibility of ever making money in the deal so i'm so far behind i just want to like i don't want to work for free anymore let me just fire mm -hmm. sell this deal and move on with my life so that's that's um you know i'm saying there's not a right or wrong way to that sure. but that is that is certainly something i don't think a lot of passive investors kind of really take into account of the uh, potential to disalign interest mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. due to having the preferred return versus the way we do it. And we could participate, you know, along the way, um, you know, it kind of more perfectly aligns interest in my estimation. Uh, but yeah, those, those are my two cents about it. Right, right, right. No, I, I get it. I, I mean, I think simple, straight, clear, and just be sort of uh, concise about it. I think that's kind of how your approach looks like. Um, now, speaking of value add, you said earlier, oh, Michael, that you are looking at uh, sort of a 10% uh, rent differential to sort of give you that uh, growth, right? Um, why not deep value add sometimes with the scale, the capital and things like that, that you sure. have at your disposal, uh, why not maybe go for killer deals where you, you know, like get some unbelievable returns within three years, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, so we certainly have, uh, had our fair shares of home runs along the way too. Uh, sure. but we've always kind of done the light value add a couple, a couple reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what I, uh, um, what I'm always striving to do is try to produce the best risk adjusted returns. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one thing that's been kind of lost here lately, especially with some of the newer syndicators, some of the less experienced people that people are investing with. And there's, Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. People, everyone starts with their first deal. But sure. um, if you're looking at a, a, a two properties and one of them is in a nice affluent suburban market mm -hmm. in your town, and then you look at the other one that's in the ghetto in the hood, and they both produce a similar rate of return. Um, the risk of those two properties are, are different. So sure. if you're going to go to something that's got more deep distress and value add, you need to make sure that you're getting compensated by having a higher return. Um, you know, I, I feel better about if I can just find something that um, I can walk into that works day one, it just doesn't work that well. And then through my efforts, through the management improvements, through the capital I'm going to apply into the deal and, you know, mm -hmm. physically improve and transform the physical condition of the asset. And I can um, produce a current yield pretty much from day one to my investors that mm -hmm. is maybe a little bit smaller than as I turn unit over unit by unit, month by month, lease by lease, I kind of generally increase the income as we go along and I can increase cash flow along the way. That's just is a safer deal to me. Um, so that, that's the main reason why we focus more on the light value add. And then quite frankly, um, just to where we are in the marketplace, there's very little distress stuff 
It's been sure. like a booming economy for you know nearly a decade at this point, eight years deep in this in this expansion cycle or more. So there's not much distress left. So if, if you have a property that you're buying today that's super distressed, there's got to be something extremely wrong with something it. Something majorly wrong. Or a location because uh, even that properties are full today. So you know it's uh I just don't see a whole lot of it. And then the other part of it is we're to the point where I can't. Uh, I can't deploy a million, two million dollars anymore. We're, we've gotten so big that it's not efficient. It's not a good use of time. So we have You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's 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 definitely a fa uh, sort of a factor that I mean, you know, as you gain bigger, you want to go from transaction to transaction without you know having such uh, you know such a project as I call it that you know you're kind of stuck. And you know, as we all know, in this deep value components, there's just so many other issues that can pop up. Yeah. So, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that <laughs> our philosophy, and that's just not kind of what what we want to um, take on. Sure, sure. So I know, uh, Michael, you are, for example, in Dallas now, right? So uh, what are your thoughts on markets? And what I mean by that is, I mean, you got Florida's of the world that are thriving too. Um, I know Dallas, Austin are really hot. I mean, yeah. great job growth, population growth, things like that. Uh, for anybody new out there, what advice would you give that if they have to look out of state and things like that, yeah. how can they go about kind of drilling down into submarkets and things like yeah, that? Yeah, so so I'm uh, I'm fortunate enough. I, I was born here, grew up here um, in Texas, and and you know I was happy to live in a, an environment that's you know kind of um, a great environment to do what I do for a living. So, but a lot of people don't have that same thing. So maybe you live in a really small area and you just don't have the um, the, the available product because you live in the middle of nowhere or maybe you live sure. in California and the cap rates are so low and stuff. Um, so what, what I kind of look at and what, what I like about Texas and Florida kind of falls in the same place too. There's other places across the country as well just because I'm in Texas and I invest in Texas doesn't mean it's only good markets. But what I would kind of look for would be you know, kind of first and foremost, um, find an environment that's landlord and business friendly. So, you know, in Texas, if you don't pay your rent in the state of Texas, you can be evicted in 30 days. If you go to, you know, California, the District of Columbia or New York, it could be six months, nine months, you know, to get someone out. And so you have these professional tenants that live there. So one, find a uh, business landlord and friendly um, environment. I want to I find a place that has population day migration. So, you know, Texas, Florida are two good examples of that. Uh, we have no income state and uh, no income state tax in both um, mm. state income tax in Florida and Texas. So we're mm. seeing lots of corporations relocate. The mm. uh, cost of living is a little bit more affordable. So they're moving from New York to Florida and the moving from California to Texas. And these people are coming and following the jobs. So we have, you know, uh, population and migration. You know, the, the biggest um, struggle or the biggest, biggest risk in these deals I have no control over uh, would be and the biggest thing that's hard to defend against is if you have population out migration. So the example I like to use is if Dallas ever one day turns into Detroit and half the city moves out, the population shrinks by 50%. It's going to be really hard to be successful um, owning apartments. So I want to be in an environment where the wind's kind of in my back, the more my face. Um, you know, when you go to California, they 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 didn't pass it, but Oregon just passed like statewide rent control. Right. Uh, you know, so like you get stuff like that. That's very difficult. 
Um, and then we're just looking at kind of the, the, the specific submarkets. You know, I'm personally, we, we focus on suburban multifamily mm-hmm. and better school districts near retail, near thoroughfares, going to take the 101 seriously. But I know a lot of other people might be more specializing in like urban core stuff. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, there's no right or wrong in this business. It's as long as you find something and you understand it. And, you know, what I found is specific knowledge um, mitigates risk. So, yes, yeah, specific knowledge about a type of product, a location, a submarket, you will be much better in that market than I will be if I don't have that same specific knowledge. So right. get that specific knowledge, it'll mitigate your risk. And a lot of people make a lot of money doing a lot of things I won't do, but they understand what they're doing. So that that would be um, I get the way I answer it. But uh, to, about your markets, you know, population and migration, business landlord friendly, job growth, um, you know, low low income tax states. I think those tend to be the winners uh, today and the recent past, and I think they will be the same going forward. I see. Yes. Now, speaking of syndications, uh, Michael, how you go about uh, raising capital? Um, I know, I, I guess that's not a concern nowadays with the amount uh, and the scale that you have. Always um, a concern. <laughs> I guess, you know, you probably have a 25 million problem than, you know, someone, somebody new who, who probably has a million dollar sure. problem. But, sure. you know, uh, in all seriousness, like when you started, right? So how you went about raising capital, some, can you give us maybe some tips and tricks? Yeah, yeah. so um, we, we were uh, syndicators. So we'll just go take, um, you know, a bunch of high net worth people and we'll raise $100,000 at a time. So, uh, you know, I was mentioning we had a couple of deals. So uh, next, next Wednesday, as we record this, I'm going to have a webinar and we got to raise 24.6 million bucks to try to get it done in three weeks. And we're going to blast out to thousands and thousands of people that are in our, our database. And uh, we got to get uh, my average checks today is about 130, uh, 130,000 is my average check. So I got to get somewhere between 180 and 200 people to give me money to get raised 24.6 billion bucks. Mm-hmm. So some tips, you know, I didn't start there. This is my 34th, 35th deal. Um, so some tips kind of how you get, you get going and then how you kind of scale. Um, you know, the, the first people that are, uh, I found that are going to give you money, it's kind of like the, the three F rule. The first people that are going to give you money will be your friends, family, and fools. Those are the people that, you know, do it. So people that know, like, and trust you or people that just don't know any better. Those are the people that are going to give you money. Cause when you're I starting out, you, I knew the friends and family. I didn't know the third F. <laughs> yeah, cool. right, you know, those people that just don't know any better. Cause uh, when you're starting out, you know, you don't have a track record and there's, there's a certain there's a different, different risk profile investing with a guy like me that's done this 33 times sure. than answer you on your first time. Because when I see something, I've probably seen, uh, whenever the scenario comes at me, I've probably seen that's the exact same scenario, something very similar. So I know what the right answer is. And when you're starting out, that's that's one of the hardest things to do when you're starting out is you just don't have a, a reference point on anything. Is every time you're doing it, it's the first time. So every decision is difficult. And every decision you have to stop and think right. about, and like, what's the right decision? Well, once you do it a while, it's, it, it just becomes like second nature. Um, so tips are, you know, you start kind of with, with what you have. So everyone starts with what they have. Uh, where they are. You're young, you're old, you're black, you're white, you have money, you're broke, you know, you have some uh, professional experience or you don't. So the first thing I would, I would say is you just kind of start with like, do a really good personal assessment about what do you have and what are the things that you bring to the table? 
Um, and then when you're going out and putting a deal together, the way I think of it, it's just like putting a puzzle together. You got little pieces and you got to put all the pieces together. And at the very end, the picture becomes clear. So maybe you're missing some of the pieces. So maybe you have some money, but you don't only really have a track record or some experience. So you should maybe try to go network and find somebody that has a little bit of experience. And then you can maybe team up together, use your capital, their experience or vice versa. Like you're, you don't have any experience. I mean, you, you know, you have a little bit of money, but you're, you're hungry and you're willing to work and have a lot of drive. Mm -hmm. You find someone that's got a you know, busy professional that is willing to kind of sign on your mortgage because you got to. You got to get the debt, you got to get the equity and you got to get mm -hmm. the deal and you got to put it all together. Um, so, you know, just, just try to, if you don't have something, you know, you just got to be very self-aware about what you have, what you bring to the table, what you're missing, and then go try to find a solution for everything you're missing. Sure. And at the end of the day, you kind of put a deal together. So uh, one of the things I like to say, I like to use a lot of analogies. I've already used a couple. So another analogy I like to use is, um, you know, no one ever, uh, no one ever comes to my house or my office and gives me money. So if I want to, or a deal, right? If I want to go get money or a deal, I got to go out and get it. So right. you got to go get networks. You got to go to places where other people that are interested in investing in real estate are, and you got to get, get to know them and build a relationship. You just can't do that behind your desk. Right. Um, and then if you want to go get deals, the brokers control the deals. So then you got to go get in front of the brokers and, and build a rapport and relationship with them because they're not going to sell you a deal if they don't know you and or like you. So those are just things that you have to, you know, get out of your comfort zone. I know a lot of people that do this are engineers uh, by background. And so they aren't naturally like the networking outgoing types. You kind of got to get out of your comfort zone and go out and, and, and do it, you know. Tell me how I know. I'm a personally an engineer myself, yeah. right. <laughs> an IT guy. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, from a platform of experience, uh, personally, uh, Michael, you know, uh, I own, you know, over 200, uh, you know, rental units and apartments and things like that, like a, almost a $40 million portfolio, right? So with the 20 year experience that I have uh, here, Michael, a lot of times I hear on podcasts or a, a, any other sort of educational webinars and things like that, um, you know, there's typically some gurus advising uh, other folks that, oh, you can get into multifamily and things like that. And, you know, you just need somebody to, you know, partner with you and you can get in. And I find it like pretty dangerous uh, that someone can just try to get into multifamily like that. And, you know, I wish really all, all the success for them, but I feel that it's a, such a huge red flag that people should just doesn't know that you're trying to get into something that you just don't have much experience about. Yeah. What are your thoughts that do you, uh, do you recommend like some people that, Hey, maybe get few renovation experiences, maybe have some house experiences and things like that, maybe duplex, triplex, whatever they may be. Yeah, I, um, you know, for sure. I mean, education is really it. So if you're listening to podcasts like this one, or there's a bunch of good podcasts out there, like we have sure. a podcast, a little capital real estate investing podcast. So that's Absolutely. on Stitcher, you know, anywhere you find a bitch, you probably find us. Um, so listening to podcasts are an easy thing to do. That's, that's free and that's easy. Um, you're reading books are free and easy, but from there, you know, there's a lot of local real estate investing clubs. So in particular, if you're in a major metropolitan area, there's probably a real estate investing club around uh, that focuses on multifamily. So that's a good way to go kind of get networked to meet experienced people. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm, I, uh, I think, you know, if you start small and kind of scale up, that's a good way because the mistakes you make 
on smaller dollar amounts versus the bigger dollar amounts and kind of right. slow up. That's a little slower way of going about it. I've seen a lot of people here in Dallas is a bunch of um, these types of uh, groups and, and clubs. And, you know, if you find a reputable mentor, someone that's, you know, reputable and has done this before oh, yeah. out there and you pay them, that's a, certainly a good way to kind of shortcut the process. Sure. Um, but you know, it's, it's not inexpensive to, to, to go that route. It's going to cost sure. you mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the end of the day, if you, if you make one mistake on a large scale apartment complex, you can cost yourself, you know, well more than whatever that, that fee is. Plus right. you potentially lose someone's uh, hard earned money that invested with you. So, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people be successful with it. So just make sure you make sense. And the person that you're talking to actually has actual experience doing this. Right. Um, as, as we get longer in the cycle, I keep seeing more and more of these guys that pop out of nowhere. Sure. I've done, done a deal or two and all of a sudden they're super experts and they're going to teach you how to do it for 20000 right. Very dangerous. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, speaking of multifamily loans, um, yep. you know, I know they are very well structured, very well balanced with the right leverage and things like that. Could you maybe give, give insight to our listeners about multifamily loans, like how Fannie, Freddie, or bridge loans, why would you use a uh, sort of a bridge debt and things like that? But more importantly, you know, like, this is not just a residential loan that, you know, somebody can, you know, fog a mirror and try to, you know, get a loan and get into a house. But with multifamily, there are just so many checks and balances. Would you maybe give us some insight and intelligence into these? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when I'm thinking about putting debt on a deal, I always kind of start with the end game in mind. So if we're going to buy a deal, renovate it and flip it in two years, then, you know, a bridge, a bridge loan might make a little bit more sense. And sure. so the bridge loans are typically, you know, historically always been kind of like with your regional community banks. I hear lately there's been a lot of like debt funds that come out that are doing a whole bunch of uh, of that type of lending. So there's a plethora of bridge options right now out there. Um, but if, you know, you're buying something, you want to own it for a five-year period or something, mm-hmm. the, uh, the agencies, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are not only two largest lenders in the single family space, mm-hmm. they're the two largest lenders in the multifamily space. So there's a, a bunch of um, great loan products out there and they tend to be, you know, anywhere from five to 12 years long. It's kind of tends to be the, mm-hmm. the term with most of these being either seven, 10 or 12 years um, on term. And you can typically today get multiple years of interest only on the front end. The 30-year amortizations will go up to 80% uh, so long as you have a 1.25 debt coverage ratio, meaning that your net operating income uh, underwritten NOI is 125% of your annual principal and interest payment. Sure. Uh, they'll, they'll loan you up to 80%. So it's getting a little harder. So most of these deals today are kind of capping out around seven, somewhere between 70 and 75. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think the lenders are being really prudent today and uh, they're having really stringent underwriting and they're holding to it. Uh, what they're doing is they're kind of just getting cheaper on their spreads. And so they're just kind of dropping their price, but they're holding the credit standards. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm thinking that the marketplace overall is pretty healthy from that standpoint. Um, but, you know, once you get in and you can qualify for Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, I mean, you're getting non-recourse debt, meaning there's no personal um, guarantee that you have to sign on it. Um, you're getting loans that are assumable. So I could sell my property and you come in and assume, take over my mortgage for me. Very um, attractive. Yep. They allow what they call supplemental financing. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if I buy a deal, I renovate it, I increase the value. Um, they'll give you a second lien cash out note, uh, sure. maybe two, three years down the road and, and let you re-leverage the loan back up without having to pay off your first. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're really, you know, good quality products, and uh, that's that's really what's um, helping the marketplace quite a bit. Is is a debt, uh, the debt that's out there is available and abundant, 
and the agencies really um, do do subsidize our industry in a lot of ways right. by, by providing us very um, favorable debt terms. Awesome, awesome. So now speaking of analyzing deals, Michael, how do you go about analyzing deals? Is that like sort of a in-house team that you have? Uh, like, could you maybe share your uh, yep. sort of your team structure? How do you go about that? <clears throat> Yeah, so when uh, the way we're set up is we have two offices. So I kind of head up our Dallas office. My partner, Sean, heads up the Austin office. Mm-hmm. So up here in Dallas, my, my primary responsibilities are asset management, kind of overseeing the properties that we have, uh, raising all the money, investor relations, I do taxes, uh, and, you know, source deals. Um, down in Austin, he also helps source deals. They pretty much run the transaction. So uh, underwriting and, and uh, analyzing deals, placing the debt, uh, running escrows is kind of handle out of them uh, there. Mm-hmm. So when we get a deal in the front door, the basic kind of screening process is if someone calls me up, a broker calls me up, I have such and such deal. I kind of basically do a, a quick little analysis and say, okay, is this a deal that's the right type of product, the right vintage, the right mm-hmm. location, mm-hmm. Uh, and the right size? If it kind of if it doesn't pass it, I kind of kill the deal. If it passes it, then we'll spend a little bit more time. Sure. Then we kind of go into like the price. So okay, uh, you know, it's a hundred thousand door sounds like a good price or is a hundred thousand dollars that sounds crazy mm-hmm. expensive for that type of deal from what right. i know so right. a lot of the deals get kind of killed just right there just because uh, it just is just too expensive on right. that right. and, and, and if i may michael there uh, I know your market very well. I mean, you pretty much know that, okay, what's a deal or what is a possible deal and what's really not a deal. Yeah. So at, at the platform of experience that you have, is it more of a napkin math for you that, hey, I just know this right away that there is some potential that we may try to, you know, poke further versus like, are you? Yeah, so so that that is like the, right. So that's the first gut check. Then once it passes that, then we'll do, um, a, a real quick analysis. So I'll spend like 15 minutes. So we'll just do some high level projections. And a lot of times these deals get killed right then. And if it passes the high level projections at that point, I'll go out and tour the deal. And, uh, and then I'll go out and uh, we'll actually, you know, tour the deal and it makes sense from that point, then we'll actually do a full, um, full underwriting on the deal. And then when we do a full underwriting, we're spending four or five hours underwriting the deal, doing rent comp survey, expense. And so, you know, I'm trying to make sure um, the biggest cost I have in my life right now is opportunity costs. So if I spend time on this thing, it's at the expense of something else, another deal, spending time with my kids, whatever. So I'm trying to do my best to kill a deal as soon as possible. So I don't spend a bunch of time on stuff that's never going to work. And that's um, what experience I think kind of believes you. Because when we do a full underwriting, we're spending four or five hours on it. So the more underwritings I can avoid spending five hours on, the better off I am, you know, if that makes sense. But uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, it it does. It does. And I think as you rightfully said, like the amount of things that you have going on, there are like a lot of important things on the plate rather than some potential deal that perhaps may not work out. So your ability or to spend the time on the right things is extremely important. So good. I appreciate it. And not just me, that's everybody, right? And that's hard starting out. Like, cause you don't have that experience. So like, right. that's where, you know, you, when you're starting out, you have to go down these rabbit holes. You're never going to get, sure. then you learn like, okay, this never was going to happen. So every sure. deal that you do when you're starting out, you should just kind of go back and reflect, like, should I have recognized that this was not a deal earlier on to save me four hours right. um, of my time? Cause I spent four hours on this instead of the next thing. Sure. Sure. So in your journey of career, uh, uh, Michael, uh, what is sort of the best advice uh, as related to investing that you have gotten so far? 
Um, you know, I think, I think, um, that's a good question. Best advice. You know, I've got a lot of pieces of advice. I mean, I think, um, you know, this is like, as a business, like I mentioned, you can't do from behind your desk. Um, you know, when you're doing, when you're doing this business, you know, I think you need to be very specific about what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you're starting out, maybe you don't know what that is. So you need to kind of look at a lot of stuff, but at some point, the most successful people I've seen have been very targeted and very specific and they become masters of, of, of one thing. You know, like I buy light value ad stuff in suburban Dallas, Fort Worth and Austin. I don't, I don't do self storage. I don't do, you know, office industrial. So sure. you see a lot of people that are kind of jacks of all trades and I never really get a whole lot done mm -hmm. or they buy like a deal in Toledo and Indianapolis and Dallas and Jacksonville and this and that. And they're like, sure one man band. And so they're always just out there scattered everywhere. So mm -hmm. I think if you can focus on one thing and become mm -hmm. an expert on a location and a product type, you certainly can be, um, you know, more successful. And then I think another thing would be, um, you know, it's a business of partnerships, a lot of ways. So I found a primary operating partner in Sean that has very different, but yet complementary skill sets of mine. Mm -hmm. He's like a genius when it comes to analyzing and underwriting deals, but he's not so comfortable talking in front of a group of people and raising capital. Mm -hmm. So what, what we found is when, you know, if you find a good partner and you guys join up and do it together, we don't, we're not able to produce twice as much work by, um, by that where we're, we're able to produce four or five times the amount of the work and production. Sure. Cause I focus on what I'm good at and he focuses on what he's good at. So we're a lot more efficient at the things that we, we do. Like I can do a lot of pretty much anything he can do and he probably can figure out everything I'm doing. He just sure. wouldn't be very good at half of that job that I'm good at. So right. when you're, when you're, if, if you do get into partnership, um, give it some thought and be intentional and strategic about who you partner with and make sure they're not the exact same personality type as you. Cause then mm -hmm. that's not as the best efficient way of, of, of forming partnerships. Sure. Sure. Very great advice. So multifamily is a relationship and a uh, sort of a multi-team sport game. Basically. It is. Absolutely. So thank you, Michael, please share uh, regarding a podcast. I know old capital podcast uh, that you and Paul Peebles uh, yeah. co-host. I mean, it's a wonderful source of knowledge. I recommend all listeners to check out you, YouTube's, uh, you know, SoundCloud, all the social media platforms where, uh, so, you know, the old capital podcast is available. Uh, could you maybe share, uh, sort of a general background around how it came about? And yeah. So, so there's, uh, like, I appreciate that. So the, um, really a couple ways to find out information about me. Really the best ways if, if you guys like, uh, podcasts, you like apartments, which you probably do if you listen to this one right here. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> podcast is for i like to say it's for apartment nerds right sure. uh so if you're into apartments it's the one for you so we talk to uh this is my partner bob peoples runs a company called little capital and so he's a uh, very prominent successful mortgage broker that makes loans on multi-family properties right. all across the country um and he's based in, in dallas as well as i am and so we'll talk to clients or brokers or management companies or insurance people anything in and around buying and operating apartment complexes so if you go to itunes or stitcher you can just type in Old Capital, find it there. Uh, the other way to find uh, more information about us really is my company is SPI Advisory. So the best way to find out more information or maybe uh, I'm always happy to have a, a, a little conversation with people from the podcast. Simply go to my company's website, which is www.spiadvisory.com. That's SPI, like spy, advisory.com. And on there, there's a contact us form. 
if you fill that out, I'm always happy to set up a 10 or 15 minute call with the listeners off of a podcast. So. Awesome. Awesome. It's been a pleasure having you, Michael, the platform of experience and at a level you are, I think you have you know, unique insights uh, that all can learn and uh, sort of grow to a level that you are at. So yeah. it's been a pleasure having you and I appreciate you spending time uh, with us today. Thank, yeah, you, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.